Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Isaiah chapter 56, we will get there eventually. Isaiah 56 affords us a great opportunity to talk once again about the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. And I know we talk about that a lot here, but it is necessary to really understand it. If you don't make the differentiations between the Old and the New Covenant, what you will end up doing is mixing and matching the two covenants and then you end up imposing old covenant rules and ideas on new covenant saints. And if you don't make those differentiations, passages like Isaiah 56 will confuse you because Isaiah 56 is going to repeatedly say, keep the Sabbath. And if you don't know anything about the Sabbath and the differences between the Sabbath in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, if you just read Isaiah 56 and then say, oh, that's about me, then you're going to conclude that you have to keep the Sabbath because after all, the Bible says so. So let's start by kind of understanding what the Sabbath is and exactly who the Sabbath was assigned to and what the fulfillment of the Sabbath is that we see in the New Testament. Uh, Even though I said that we are in Isaiah 56, we're going to begin tonight back in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible after God has redeemed his people Israel out of Egypt. He has taken them to Mount Sinai, called Moses up onto the mountain, and has given him the law that they are to live by. In the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, The fourth of those commandments is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so it's right there in the top ten. It really is that important that they remember the Sabbath day. So why? Why this one day out of seven? Well, not only is it connected to God ceasing from all his work, he created everything in six days and on the seventh day he rested, But in Exodus chapter 31, we're going to see a description of why the Sabbath. And the reason for it is because, as God is going to say, it is a sign of this covenant between God and Israel. Every time that God makes a covenant, he always gives a sign for that covenant. And we see that all the way back to Noah when God promises that he's not going to flood the earth anymore, he puts the rainbow in the sky and says, that's going to be a sign and it's going to be a reminder and a remembrance. In the Moses covenant, keep the Sabbath becomes the sign of the covenant. I didn't say it. We're about to read God saying it to Moses. The Abrahamic covenant also has a sign. It is circumcision. The new covenant also has a sign. It is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So you have to keep those covenants and those signs straight or else you'll get confused about exactly which parts of the Bible are imposed on your individual conscience and what God expects you to actually live up to according to the covenant that you are in. Does that all make sense? Exodus chapter 31, I'm going to start reading at verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel. Who's the audience? Israel. I'm trying to be real clear here. (laughs) Speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, my sevenths, my one day out of seven in which you're going to rest and not do any servile work. You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign 
between me and you throughout your generations so that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So there's the purpose of the sign of the covenant of the Sabbath. It is specifically a sign between God and Israel and is part of the way that God is separating Israel from all the other nations on the earth. No other nations on the earth at this moment are told to keep the Sabbath. But Israel is told to keep the Sabbath because it is a sanctification, a separation of those people from every other people group on the planet. And it is a sign that God has made a specific covenant between himself and them. Verse 14 goes on. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. It is separate for you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. So very serious as a sign of a covenant. For whoever does any work on the Sabbath, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day, There is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. What people group then is supposed to keep the Sabbath as a perpetual covenant? Israel. Israel. Is that obvious enough yet? Okay, just trying to make sure you... So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Verse 17, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from labor and he was refreshed. When he had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. Now, the book of Exodus refers to those Ten Commandments as the words of the covenant, which are written down on stone tablets, which are referred to as the tables of the covenant. They are put in a golden box that is called The Ark of the Covenant. Are you getting a feel for the covenant thing? And the sign of that covenant is keep the Sabbath. And that covenant is made between Israel and God. And so when you get to the New Testament and you get to the inception of the New Covenant, you see Paul saying things like we read on a recent Sunday morning. Don't let anybody judge you in keeping a new moon or a feast day or a Sabbath. Well, then I asked the question, well, then what changed? I mean, here God has said it is a perpetual mandatory sign that you have to keep throughout your generations. And if you don't, you're going to be killed and separated from your people. It was that serious. And yet Paul could say, don't let anybody judge you about keeping the Sabbath. What changed? The new covenant. And so if you don't see the difference between the mandatory Sabbath of the old covenant and the inception of the new covenant, then you're going to think that things like tithing or things like Sabbath keeping or things like circumcision or anything else that you find prescribed in the law is therefore binding on the conscience of Christian new covenant people because you have mixed and matched your covenants. In the New Testament, you can look at all the Pauline, all the apostolic writing. When they are writing to Gentiles, at no point does anyone anywhere ever say, keep the Sabbath. It doesn't come up. And it is necessary, this just seems logical to me, that if you're talking to a group of people who aren't part of the Moses Covenant, people who don't have the scriptures, people who don't have the prophets, who don't have the oracles, if that's the group of people you're talking to and you expect them to keep the Sabbath because it is 
binding on their conscience, it seems like you would have to mention that at least once when you're teaching them the ways of Christ. At some point, someone would have to say to the Gentiles, and oh yeah, keeping the Sabbath is part of it. But the same way that Paul said that you're not to be judged and don't let anybody judge you in the keeping of a new moon or a feast or a Sabbath day. This is the same Paul who said that the Gentiles were not to be circumcised. And when those from James came to Galatia and tried to bind that on the conscience of Gentile believers, Paul used some of his most fierce language against them. So the same argument that I've made for years about tithing, if you've got a Gentile audience that is not tithing, they've never been taught the tithe to the temple, they've never been taught the tithe to the Levites, They've never been taught the tithe that you go and eat at the feast. They've never been taught any of that. So if the expectation is that the Gentiles are then going to start tithing, someone would have to teach them that. And we don't find that in any of the New Testament documents. Same thing with the Sabbath. The Old Covenant makes the Sabbath mandatory, just like we just read. But in the New Covenant, the only place where you see it addressed is a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of the book of Hebrews gives you the satisfaction and the fulfillment of the Sabbath when he says there remains a Sabbathing for the people of God to this very day. He said, when we rest from our works, in other words, trusting in Christ and the works of Christ instead of trusting in our own fleshly works, that when we do that, we are completely resting from our work. And that, he says, is the satisfaction of the Sabbath, which was the actual substance that cast the shadow of Old Covenant, Old Testament Sabbathing. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm afraid to ask, am I alone up here? Because last night it was agreed at men's meeting that the next time I asked that, everybody would say, yes, yes, you are. Yes. So I'm not even going to ask. With that all in mind, we can then read Isaiah 56 and know that when it brings up the necessity of Sabbathing, the audience that Isaiah is writing to is under the Sabbath requirement and is under the covenant of Sinai. So of course Isaiah would say this to those people. But if you don't have your biblical Sabbathing theology and covenants correct, it would be easy to read Isaiah 56 and treat it the same way that you treat Isaiah 53 and say, look, that's the, the Christ, the Messiah to come, who took away our sin. That's all about me. And now I'm a couple chapters later and it says Sabbath. Well, then it must still be about me. So then I, I guess I have to still keep the Sabbath. And that confusion exists in large swaths of the modern Christian church. And I do get emails from people who ask about it again and again. What about the Sabbath? And I have written about it and it's on the website. And I have debated about it on the website because there is so much confusion about the Sabbath question. But if you just read what the Bible actually says, it's pretty easy to clear up because it took me, what, 20 minutes? And I hope that it's all clear now to all of you. If I've muddied the waters, let me know. But the Bible is quite clear about it. And so get your Old Covenant, New Covenant distinctions correct when you read stuff like this. Okay, thus ends the introduction. Thus says the Lord, chapter 56 of Isaiah, verse 1. He has just finished his offer. Come to the water. Come, eat, drink, wine and milk. Get it without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which isn't bread? And he carries on from there to talk about these wonderful promises that lay ahead for national Israel. And in the midst of that, he then begins instructing them. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice 
and do righteousness. Well, yes, of course, that is part of the law. The 613 ordinances of the law are about being just with people, being fair with people, being honest with people, which is why you find even in the Ten Commandments, don't bear false witness against each other. That would be unjust. Treat other people fairly, be righteous, do the correct things that are prescribed in the law, but then right behind that command to preserve justice. Don't just do it, don't just perform it, make sure that it is preserved within Israel. Don't let it slip, don't let it disappear, don't let it fade away, preserve justice within Israel and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come. Unquestionably, that is a reference to Jesus to come. He is the righteousness. He is the salvation of God. This is really helpful when we're thinking about eschatology. Pretty soon, in a couple of weeks, ideally, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start studying the book of Revelation. And we will talk about some of the time signatures, time stamps that the book of Revelation uses. Some eschatologies make a great deal of the fact that the book of Revelation uses words like soon. And so they say, well, that had to have happened then right away. Here, this obvious reference to Christ coming says he is about to come. And that was said 700 years before Christ actually came. But in the mind of God, since that was already decided, since he already knew that was going to happen, since we read in the New Testament that when the fullness of time had come, when the appropriate moment came, that's when Christ came to the earth. And yet God could say, eh, it's coming soon. Because I suppose when you live in eternity, 700 years is just a blink, which is why Peter could say things like, a thousand years is a day, and a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. We feel like that's a long time, but when you're eternal, uh, that's just a day. Same thing happening here. My salvation is about to come, and I really, really like the fact that God just said, do righteousness, and yet in his awareness that no matter how hard we try, we're never going to accomplish actual complete righteousness. So one of the names that he gives to the Christ to come he calls him my salvation, and he calls him my righteousness. And my righteousness is going to be revealed. When Christ came to the planet and was sinless, he was an example of the actual righteousness of God walking in shoe leather here on the planet. And God knew that's what he was going to be like. So even though he tells us, be just, be righteous, he then says, but my righteousness is what's going to accomplish salvation. So this tells us that there's balance with God. Just like we've been seeing in Colossians the last several Sundays, even though Jesus is our perfection, even though his single sacrifice perfected forever all of us and we are complete in Christ, nevertheless, once we know that about ourselves, we're then told, now don't be like this. And we're told, do be like this. And so here again, God says, I'm going to satisfy my own righteousness. The one who is my righteousness is going to come and accomplish my salvation. But until he does, be righteous, be just, follow my law, preserve justice, fully knowing that our best efforts are filthy rags. But that doesn't excuse us from putting forward our best efforts. We're still expected to walk after the course of God. But he knows that our righteousness, no matter how good we think we're doing, our righteousness is never going to be up to his righteous standard. We're never going to hit his level of holiness. And therefore, none of us are ever really going to be saved. And so his salvation and his righteousness are going to come to the planet to accomplish the salvation of his people. So just like in Isaiah 53, where he explained that the suffering servant was going to come, was going to suffer, was going to bear our sins, was going to be the healing of the nation, 
And then God was going to prolong his days and see his offspring. And so that speaks of resurrection. And based on that, God could then say, and there's this glorious future for Israel, even though they have rebelled, even though they have followed after their other gods, even though they have been unjust, even though they have sinned in front of me continually. Nevertheless, because of the promise I made to Abraham, I'm going to guarantee them a glorious future, not based on them, not based on their own righteousness, but on Christ, the suffering service, servant, the suffering service, that too, the suffering servant, who is the one who is the righteousness of God and the salvation of God, and he died for the sins of Israel, for the restoration of the nation, and that is the basis on which God can actually accomplish everything else he said he's going to do for Israel. Then he brings it up again a couple chapters later, and he tells them, preserve righteousness, preserve justice, do righteousness, because my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is about to be revealed. Tom, if you would, turn to Matthew 5, 6. That's Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. Here Isaiah says, how blessed is the man who does this, preserving justice, doing righteousness. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and who keeps his hand from doing evil. So Isaiah combines the idea of keeping the Sabbath. If you profane the Sabbath, you are in fact doing evil. If you keep the Sabbath, you are doing righteousness and you are keeping your hand from doing evil. And how blessed is the man who actually preserves justice and does righteousness. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says the same thing in the Beatitudes. Read it, please, Tom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So where did Jesus get that idea? Knowing that everything Jesus is teaching and promoting is the very mind and heart and will and word of God. Well, he got it from right here. Because God, speaking through Isaiah, said that the blessed man is the one who does preserve justice and do righteousness. Jesus comes on the planet and says, I mean, like 700 years later, which is, you know, just a minute later, shows up on the planet and says, the blessed man, blessed is the man, spiritually prosperous is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, the very thing that God prescribed here. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it. That means that a man and his progeny and his sons, because a man teaches his sons, his sons are then going to grow up knowing the Lord and walking in the ways of the Lord. That's going to be important to remember in just a moment because God is also going to address people who cannot have sons, who cannot have seed, and whose household and whose name is going to disappear with them. At the end of their lives, that's the end of their household. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of the man who takes hold of it. He keeps from profaning the Sabbath and he keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner, in other words, the Gentile, who has joined himself to the Lord, these are the God-fearers, Gentiles, who have joined themselves to Israel, which has been happening ever since they came out of Egypt. There were many Egyptian slaves who came out with them, who then worshipped their God. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, yeah, that's the rule for you all, because you're Israel. But when God expects righteousness, and when God expects that we be just, he means you guys. But me, I'm an Egyptian, and so he's not talking to me. Well, here God says, if you have joined yourself to the people of God, that same expectation is on you because you are a God-fearer among the Israelites. 
So let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, I don't have any children. I can't have any children. And when I die, that's the end of my lineage. There's no seed after me. There's no growth after me. That's just the end. Okay, so those are two different groups of people that God has addressed here. There are other people who are the Gentiles, who fear the Lord, who are living among Israel. And there are also the eunuchs among Israel. And they both would look at these promises of a future and say, yeah, but that doesn't count for me. You know, all that stuff is a promise and a covenant to Israel. So I'm a Gentile, it doesn't mean me. Or, well, he said right here that the sons of men who have been taught of God, they're also going to seek righteousness, but I don't have any sons. And so this isn't about me. For thus says the Lord, says verse 4, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and who hold fast my covenant, when he says my covenant, he's talking about his law, the Sinai covenant, everything that I spelled out. If you do that, if you continue in my law and hold fast to my covenant, then even though you're a eunuch, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. In other words, God just said, it doesn't matter if you have physical progeny. It doesn't matter if you couldn't produce sons and daughters. If you follow me, if you worship me, if you keep my covenant, I will remember you. I will remember your name. I will make a memorial to you so that your name is never cut off in my house. And I'll give you a name that's better than that of sons and daughters. I will give to them, to the eunuchs, an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister, to serve God, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. If that sounds familiar, back in Matthew 21, when Jesus cleansed the temple, his charge against them was, my temple is called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. Okay, when he said, my house is called a house of prayer, what was he referring to? Right back to Isaiah, back to this same chapter. Jesus is very familiar with Isaiah, and Isaiah has already laid out the pathway for Jesus to follow so that Jesus can be the satisfaction of all these prophecies. God, in his great sovereignty, you know, hundreds of years in advance, has already prophesied very particular details about Jesus so that when Jesus performs things like cleansing the temple, he's doing it on the basis of the word of God, which was already declared 700 years in advance. That's a really sovereign God. So the two groups of people, the eunuchs who would say, well, the promises of this glorious future don't count for me because I, I have no heritage. I have no children, so I'll be cut off. So I can't look forward to that glorious future. And also any Gentile God-fearers who have joined themselves to Israel would say, well, we weren't at Mount Sinai. We're not part of that covenant. That covenant is specifically between Israel and God. And therefore, we're not part of that glorious future. And yet in both cases, God takes the time to point them out, almost like saying, I know who you are. I know what your concern is. I know what you're worried about. And I have a solution. And I am the solution. And I'm sending a solution. And I won't forget you 
because you did worship me and because you did keep my covenant and because you did not profane my Sabbath and because you did fear and worship and serve me. Therefore, I am the God who will not forget you. I am the God who will make sure that you have part of the glorious future that belongs to Israel. So even there, you see the promise of a glorious future to Israel and the early inclusion of Gentiles and those who would be thinking that they can't possibly have a future with God because they've been cut off. That's a really gracious God. Verse 8, again, endlessly fascinating. God has been giving himself the name, the proper name. He has been calling himself the Redeemer of Israel. We've seen that a lot in the book of Isaiah. He wants it to be known that he is the God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt, and he's going to gather them and redeem them yet again from all the nations of the world, and he's going to establish them and give them this glorious future. Now he calls himself by the proper name, the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. That is now an identifier of who he is, and he gives himself that name. That's not something that we theologically said, well, you know, the Bible says that he's going to do it, so therefore we'll, we'll just refer to him as the God who's going to regather Israel. He says of himself, I am the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. Who are the dispersed of Israel? Notice that does not just say the dispersed of Judah. If he said that, then we could say, well, yeah, and he did that because he brought them back from Babylon and he reestablished Jerusalem and he reestablished the temple, well, up until 70 AD. But then in 1948, he kind of did it again and the Jews are gathered there in the Middle East. So uh, that's done. Eschatologically, we can say, okay, God did all that. No, he said the dispersed of Israel. That means the 10 northern tribes as well. All 12 collective tribes of Israel, one of the chief characteristics ever since the Assyrian captivity has been that they are the dispersed. And we've read so many times now how God has said, the same way that I scattered them, I'm going to gather them. Because God takes credit for the fact that he scattered them, and he takes credit for the fact that he's going to bring them back from the places he scattered them. And since he's the one that did the scattering, he knows where they are. He knows how to find them. People make that argument every once in a while where they'll say, well, it's been thousands of years and they have intermingled and intermixed and lost their heritage. How is God going to be able to find them? He found you. He can find them. Do you think genealogy is that difficult for God? He knows where his people are. And he has given himself the proper name identification of I am Yahweh, I am the sovereign God. By the way, you'll notice the capital God there. If you have an NASB, you will notice that the word Lord is in lowercase letters and the word God is in uppercase letters because he is emphasizing the fact that he is the God of all gods. He is the supreme sovereign God. And he is the one who is Lord over everything and all people. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares. Okay, so the first half of that sentence is, I'm the God who gathers Israel. Okay, that's the end of the subject. We don't get to fight about it anymore. You don't get to argue about it. You don't, you don't get to debate about it. Just stop it. Put the keyboard down. Stop writing on Facebook. That argument is over because God himself said, I'm the one who regathers Israel. I disperse them. I regather them. That's me. End of topic. That God says, yet I will gather to them to those who are gathered 
the, the NASB adds the word others, just so that you understand what the phrase is saying. Yet there are others that I will gather to them. First, I'm going to gather Israel. I'm going to gather the 12 tribes. I'm going to gather them back to their homeland, and I'm going to keep all the promises of the covenant that I made to Abraham. But then I'm going to gather others to them. Who's that? Gentiles. That's Gentiles. That's us. How many times have you heard me say, and I don't expect you to be able to answer this question because I've said it so many times that I don't know how many times I've said it. I sound redundant in saying it. The future blessings that God is going to give to the people in the millennium and in the kingdom to come, all those blessings go through Israel and out to the Gentile nations. That is always the scenario that you read Old or New Testament. That God is going to bless Israel and the residual blessings flow from Israel out to the Gentile nations. He said it here again. First I'm going to gather Israel. Then I'm going to gather others to them. Because Israel are the ones who have God, Yahweh. They have the worship of Yahweh. They have the temple of Yahweh. They have the city of Jerusalem. They have the mountain of Zion. They have the place where God has chosen to place his name. They have all the benefits of relationship and covenant with God. They have all of that. And so Gentiles, even in the New Testament we read it, Gentiles are grafted in. We're not there by right. We're not there saying, oh, well, these promises belong to us. No, the promises, and get this right, every covenant in the Bible Every single one of them belongs to Israel without variation. And so as we are brought in to fellowship with God, to faith in God, to salvation through Jesus Christ, we are brought into that through the new covenant which is given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The blessing belongs to them. The covenant belongs to them. We are grafted into it which is why Paul writing in the Ephesians would say, we're adopted into the family. We're not sons and daughters by the natural course of descendancy from Abraham. We're Gentiles, but we get adopted into the family. So the language is always, it is Israel who are regathered. It is Israel who are blessed. It is Israel who have the covenant relationship with God, and then the Gentiles he is saving are brought to Israel because that's where salvation is. Got it? Got it. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those who I have already gathered. Now, from here until the end of Isaiah, there are only 66 chapters in Isaiah. We're reading 56, so technically 10, 11, maybe 12 more weeks, and we'll actually finish this book after the several years that it has taken us to get through Isaiah. But we're getting closer to the end. This entire last section, this big section of Isaiah which has to do with the suffering servant and the promises of a glorious future for Israel. That's been the main theme of this whole section. But from here until the end of the book, we're also going to see God putting out warnings that seem much more immediate to Jerusalem 700 years before Jesus. Because there are, again, threats of I'm going to punish you now that I've already told you that I'm going to redeem you. Now that I've told you that I'm going to make you righteous. Now that I've told you about your glorious future. Between now and then, you're also going to have times of trial and struggle, difficulty. I just want you to know that comes from me. I'm the one doing it. Therefore, maintain your faith in me even in the midst of the struggles and the trials that are to come. Because unquestionably, over the last 2,700 years, Israel has had a lot of trouble. 
I'll just put this out there. I, I, did anybody see the video today of Kamala Harris? She was speaking with some college students and a student stood up and did a diatribe against Israel and accused them of genocide, which is the systematic destruction of another race of people. And she stood there and she nodded and then she came up with some word salad about how, well, you have every right to your truth. Well, I'd love to try that one out someday. <laughs> you know, why are you resisting the vaccine? Well, that's my truth. And the vice president said that I have every right to my truth. That's not going to fly. No one's going to buy that. But anyway, if you're talking about genocide and that Israel is the perpetrators of this genocide. And the girl actually said, and it just hurts my heart. So she was just all full of feelings about it. And of course, Kamala just stood there and didn't correct her or didn't say, gee, that's one of our great compatriots in the Middle East. Part of the reason the Middle East is not overrun by terrorism is because Israel's there. No, she didn't say anything like that. She just confirmed what the girl said and said, well, and you have every right to your, your belief in your truth. Okay, now why did I say that? Because it's been 2,700 years since Isaiah said this. And just today, there was yet another example of students, young skulls full of mush, saying these things that are continuing to perpetrate lies against Israel. Does God know that? Yeah. Is God in charge of that? Yeah. Do they still have a glorious future? Oh, yeah. Is that young girl on the wrong side of history? Oh, yeah. But at the moment, you know, her truth. So. Pray for her that she learns the truth. Yeah, well, she will. One way or the other. She will. So this is a very odd place for this to happen because now we feel the beginning of this turning from the promise of a glorious future to times of difficulty and times of trouble coming up and times of punishment from God for their rebellion again. But it is speaking to the Jews who were in Babylon, who were going to be returning to Jerusalem. It becomes much more contemporary, much of it here. Verse 9 begins... All you beasts of the field and all you beasts in the forest come to eat. What we'll see in a moment is God is speaking to the armies of Babylon or the armies that are enemies to Israel and likening them to brute beasts, but then saying, yeah, come feed on my people. Come and eat. Come satiate yourself on Israel because of their rebellion. Why? Because his watchmen, Israel's watchmen, what were the watchmen supposed to do? They were supposed to stand on the wall to watch for the enemy coming so that the people within the walls could live at peace. And then when they saw the enemy coming, they would warn the people inside the wall that they were about to be attacked, so get ready to defend yourself. And that was the job of the watchmen. God says here, their watchmen are blind. The guys who are supposed to be watching out for Israel, who are supposed to be preserving justice, the ones who are supposed to be teaching righteousness, the ones who are supposed to be warning you, look out, the punishment of God's going to come if you don't walk according to the ways of God. Those people have not been announcing that. Even the prophets have been false. And so God likens it to watchmen who can't see. You would not put a blind guy on the wall and say, watch for enemies. Let me know if you see anything. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are dumb dogs unable to bark. Not stupid dogs, dogs that have no ability to speak. But notice that he likens them to dogs. They're just beasts. They just operate by instinct. 
They are dogs without voices. They are unable to bark. Dreamers laying down who love to slumber. They're not awake. They're not paying attention. They're not pursuing the things of God. They're not pursuing and preserving righteousness. They're not standing for the justice that I expect out of them. They're supposed to be the leaders within Israel. They're supposed to be the ones who are watching out for the souls of Israel. And they know nothing. And the dogs, who we just identified, are greedy. And they are never satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. In the New Testament, the word poimen, which is translated pastors, it's technically the word shepherds. God promised that someday he was going to give Israel shepherds after his own heart. It's not insignificant that David, the man after God's own heart, was originally a shepherd. So those who are supposed to be leading God's flock, those who are supposed to be overseeing God's flock and making sure that the wolves don't devour them, God refers to as shepherds. And yet here he says, they're not good shepherds. In fact, they have no understanding. And because they don't understand the things of God, they can't lead you in the ways of God. They can't teach you the things of God because they have no understanding of God. They have all turned to their own way. Each one of them turns to his unjust gain down to the last one. In other words, there's no good ones. There's no righteous ones. There's no holy ones. There's none that are instructing Israel correctly. Can you see why God would need to correct them? The dogs are all greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding they have all turned to their own way, and each one has turned to his unjust gain to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine, and let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only more so, which is just a funny statement. My dad, when people used to say, how are you, Ed? He had this phrase he used all the time that people understood was a joke. But it's very much like this. My, my dad would say, well, I feel more like I do now than I did a little while ago. <laughs> people would say, oh, get, what? <laughs> Here he's saying, the drunk shepherds leading my people with no understanding say to themselves, life just goes on. And every day is the same. And tomorrow's going to be like today. Only more so. It's just going to be exactly the same. Whatever you see now, that's what you're going to see tomorrow. Meanwhile, God is busy saying, I'm going to bring down the beasts of the field on you. I'm going to bring down your enemies on you. I'm going to cast you into the Babylonian captivity. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to do all that to you. And you, the shepherds, are supposed to be warning Israel that you've broken the law of God and therefore God is going to defend his own righteousness, defend his own ways. And because he is a holy God who has made promises to you in that covenant that includes Sabbath keeping, he has promised you that if you break his Sabbaths, if you break his law, he's going to punish you. And you're busy going, yeah, he won't do that. Because today is the same as yesterday and every day is the same and it just goes on and on. Which makes me think of Peter saying, in the last days there will be scoffers, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Because everything continues just the same ever since the fathers died. The world becomes complacent. The world gets used to the way the world is. And we think, well, that's just how things are. And yet there are all these promises in the Bible. A glorious future for Israel. A glorious future for the church that Christ is going to return one day and gather us to himself, and so will we ever be with the Lord. And we have to hang on to those promises and hang on to that hope, even though so many of the leaders in the government, so many of the leaders within the church, so many of the people who are supposed to be watchmen and shepherds continue to say, it's all the same, and it's just going to keep going the same. And don't worry about God. He's not going to punish you just... Continue on like everything's 
fine. Well, for the next few chapters, we're going to see more of that kind of language where God again addresses, even though he has made promises, even though he has said to Israel, this glorious future is coming. That's the promise I made to Abraham. But right now, you're under the Moses covenant. And within that covenant, don't profane my Sabbath. Keep my statutes. Follow after my righteousness and my law. And if you don't, I will punish you. And they don't. And he's punishing them. All of which is proof that God is consistent to his word. And that includes his word of promise of a glorious future. So what do you do? While you're here going through the punishments, hold on to the promise of the glorious future. Because this life is not all there is. This life is a vapor. A man's life is short and full of trouble. And then there's eternity. And every man is going to stand before God and be judged. And that's God talking. So you might get your three score and ten down here. Some more, some less. But in the end, you're still going to have to deal with what God has said. And so, if you are under the covenant that says keep the Sabbath, you keep the Sabbath. If you're under the covenant that says salvation by grace through faith, but now act like it, well then, you're under that covenant of salvation by grace through faith, but you're also called to act like it and behave like it because the God who is in heaven is a righteous God. The maker of heaven and earth is a holy God and he expects those people who belong to him to represent him that way. Do you get the old covenant, new covenant distinction? Mm -hmm. Do you see why Isaiah could say these particular things to those particular people? And even as he was saying it to them, God identified himself as the God who was going to regather dispersed Israel. That's That's really significant. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.